you could shape the future of technology instead of just waiting for the latest update. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Friday, April 28th, and this is In the Moment. It's easy to think of artificial intelligence and technological developments as things that happen elsewhere, Silicon Valley and far-off labs. But Josh Citrick has another vision. He's the director of Innovator Empowerment at Northern State University in Aberdeen, and he joins us after the news. Plus, students at South Dakota Mines have partnered with a rural dentist to create a robotic prototype that could bring dental surgery to underserved areas. And Jeff Litterick helps us with a little digital spring cleaning. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. This year, we've seen emerging technologies become embedded in our everyday lives, from AI like ChatGPT to the metaverse. You've probably at least heard of, if not used, these advances. But South Dakota could be leading the charge with how we use these technologies instead of having their uses dictated to us by the likes of Silicon Valley. How, you might ask? Well, I'm glad you did ask, because our next guest has some ideas. Josh Citrick is the Director of Innovator Empowerment at Northern State University, and he joins me now from SDPB's Tom and Danielle Amon Foundation Studio on NSU's campus. Josh, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you for being here today. Hey, Jackie. Thank you so much for having me again. It's great to be back. So uh, you've this brought forth or it put words to a feeling I didn't have words for yet. And that is that sort of mm. fear and dread that I feel when I'm I'm also impressed by, especially I'm thinking about chat GPT because it's, it's sure. popping off and I'm seeing it all over the place. And I, I wasn't quite sure where that fear and dread was coming from, from. And I think this brings words to that. It's because I feel so much like these developments are just things that are happening to me and not things that uh, I might have more of an active voice in, or at least my neighbors might have more of an active voice in. So how, how do you see that level of influence spreading beyond kind of those more elite areas we tend to think of <laughs> when it comes to these advances? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, putting that fear and dread, uh, it's kind of a latent thing that, that resides within us. Why? Because technology is a great disruptor. Mm. You know, it uh, uh, disrupts the way that we hail a taxi or that we get food delivered or we uh, have our attention hijacked. So mm. I, I definitely feel that. And, you know, a little bit about my background is that I am from San Francisco. So I'm from this coastal, urban, you know, we could say elitist uh, group of people who have been uh, developing these softwares. And now, since I've been in South Dakota three years, I've been thinking a lot about our place, now our rural people's place within that ecosystem, and that we, as you said, have been consumers. It's been a one-way street. We've been consumers of this technology, but we haven't had our voice in like how it gets deployed or how it gets used. Mm -hmm. And to me, I just don't know how, how do we get that foot in the door? What does that look like to you in your mind? Sure. I think a lot of the things that I think about on campus when I'm not busy with actually doing my day job <laughs> is access <laughs> is access and equity mm. um, in technology and in digital spaces for 
our community. You know, it's usually urban and mostly coastal people that are pushing this and we've become consumers or swipers or scrollers of this. And I think that um, first off, having that conversation with our families around the dinner table of how we're using said media, whether it's chat GPT. I mean, you know, as a family, we spend time chatting with chat GPT. It's, it's a very interesting tool, but um, I think that we have to set guidelines and, and, and rules around it. And instead of that fear and dread of uh, banning a TikTok, say, we should be uh, uh, wondering and, and concerned and also asking the questions of why our children are so mesmerized by it and in what ways can we influence it and what ways can we use this technology better. Mm. I want to talk a bit about that day job. Your title as director of the <laughs> innovator empower of innovator empowerment. How can we empower our own innovators here at home to step up to this new exciting world? Well, I think it starts with how we define our relationship with technology. Are we reactive or are we proactive? I know on campus here, as part of my day job, we've run uh, several, I guess you could call them roundtable discussions for educators on uh, ChatGPT and what that means for professors and area teachers. And I think uh, for Northern, one of our goals here is to continue to do that on a monthly or bi-monthly basis is to have like an AMA, ask me anything, or, mm -hmm. or we can get other subject matter experts here at Northern because we have a lot of knowledge here. Um, you know, have a Zoom call or in person and just kind of hash it out and talk about these issues. Um, how are we gonna use uh, this technology in the classroom? How do we, you know, get our kids to be responsible with screens? I mean. I have two children, and this is these are things that I'm wrestling with uh, at this moment as well. So I think, uh, first of all, influencing this technology has to start with us defining our relationship with it. Mm, that's very interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm still hung up on the chat GPT, and if, um, sure. if listeners aren't super familiar, this is basically an artificial intelligent thing that you type in a prompt and it brings up a response. And the most interesting use that I've seen so far that excited me the most was someone typed in, type up a meal plan for someone with my specific dietary restrictions. And they yeah. got a meal plan for the week. And to me, as someone that that's where my decision fatigue absolutely mm. ends me, is the meal planning. And I'm like, oh, this is a space where it's not taking over my profession as a writer, but instead aiding me in... <laughs> <laughs> putting food on the table. And uh, I wonder if that's kind of a piece of that relationship. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's a really great use of this technology, right? Is that uh, it frees us from a lot of mundane tasks. You know, I will use it to craft the first draft of an email or uh, I maybe I want to uh, create a marketing campaign for my office and I'll use ChatGPT to kind of get those juices flowing and to uh, um, kind of get me started at the right path. You know, as a writer, you know, you know the, the intimidation of a blank page. And mm -hmm. sometimes, like you said, we don't even have the brain power to do that. And for these, you know, LLMs, these large language models, which is what ChatGPT is, um, and that's kind of the, the amazing thing that, that's really taken the world by storm is how ChatGPT 
gives you this information, right? This, this AI knowledge is not new. It's been around for probably five or six years, but it's this large language model in which ChatGPT gives you this information very confidently, I might add, um, right or wrong, mm. um, that's so exciting and, you know, a little bit terrifying as well. Right. There is so much, so much more I want to chat with you about, but we have to wrap up for now. We will come back <laughs> to this conversation. I at least feel better empowered in my relationship with AI after this chat. <laughs> my guest has been Josh Citrak. He's the director of Innovator Empowerment at Northern State University, one of those local institutions that is helping rural America find our place in that tech ecosystem. Josh Citrak, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Jackie, thank you so much. I can't wait to continue the conversation. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. Dr. Chad Carpenter is a Rapid City dentist who serves rural and isolated communities nestled throughout the Black Hills. It can be challenging to bring dental care access to places where dentists are few and far between. Dental surgery is a whole other ballgame. And that's a problem Dr. Carpenter is working to tackle with the help of a few bright minds at South Dakota Mines. They're working on a prototype of a remote robotic dentistry service. Dr. Chad Carpenter is the sponsor of the research at Mines, and he joins me in the Black Hills Surgical Hospital studio along with a couple students that we'll introduce next. But first, Dr. Chad Carpenter, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Jackie. Thank you for having us. I also want to welcome Kara Hughes, a biomedical engineering student at Mines. Kara, welcome. Yeah, thank you for having us. And Jillian Linder, also a biomedical engineering student at Mines. Jillian, welcome to you as well. Thank you. It's great to be here. Dr. Carpenter, let's start with you. This is clearly a need in so many rural areas and also in, in western South Dakota, as you're well aware. Um, tell me kind of how you got connected with these students and started pondering uh, the possibilities for remote surgery. Yeah, great question. So I was talking with Dr. Scott Wood, who is a professor of biomedical engineering at South Dakota School of Mines and Technology. And I told him that I had this dream of being able to have a dental robot that could um, basically prepare a cavity preparation on a patient using a camera and the dentist didn't have to be holding on to the drill. And so essentially you could have a digital x-ray and a digital model of the tooth and marry those two files together. And then on a computer you would um, design where you wanted the preparation to be and when I say preparation I mean the cut in the tooth that's going to remove the cavity mm. and so by doing that ahead of time you could design what the final filling would look like and actually have it ready before the tooth was even prepared and so then after that planning stage was done the robot would come in make the preparation and you could just drop the filling in and that could be completed by a dentist for, um, from a long ways away and so then a a tech or a hygienist or somebody working with the tribe or working with a public health organization, um, even in another country, could be the one that was sort of fitting the robot onto the tooth and facilitating the procedure. So that's hmm. kind of how the vision was started. Interesting. Kara and Jillian, I'll, I'll let you kind of tag team this, this answer, but I'm thinking from a student perspective, you know, where do you begin and what were some of those um, unique challenges to this kind of project that excited you as students learning how to do these things? Um, 
it was a really interesting problem to try and tackle because uh, beginning of last semester, we had virtually zero idea what happened on with dentistry. Mm -hmm. um, and so when Dr. Carpenter and Dr. Wood approached us about this project, we were like, oh, well, we could, we could come up with something. And I think it went way farther than any of us actually anticipated and where I think we're both very excited with what we have done here. Uh, and so, yeah, the unique ch uh, challenges of just trying to come up with um, something that is safe for patients to use, safe for the dentist to use, um, was a really unique try and like figure it all out. Mm -hmm. And yeah, uh, as Dr. Carpenter was saying, he has a very big idea. And one of the first challenges we had with this project was just narrowing the project down into something that would be feasible for our experiences. Yeah. Um, I want to, uh, the, the prototype that we're working with, this is something that, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of how to describe this non-visually, something that basically we, we mount to the patient's head or face. Am I, am I kind of on track here? Yeah, so currently our design is mounted to the same jaw that you're trying to work on. Um, it's a, a use of like a 3D printed mouth guard that we designed and then Imprigum, gum, which is a very common casting material that dentists use already. Hmm. And the uh, main issue that we're trying to combat is, is that the back teeth are some of the hardest teeth to work on for dentists, as Dr. Carpenter might be able to attest to, and that the ergonomics behind it are really challenging. Um, so they were very curious about trying to figure out those issue, main issues first before trying to tackle on maybe the front teeth with a different designed mouth guard. Right. Um, Dr. Carpenter, I'm, I'm thinking about the most common uh, ideas of dental surgery or the most common instances, I should say, of dental surgery that this would be able to help with. I'm hearing cavities. Are there other possibilities uh, for, for this use? Yes, there are. You could complete a crown preparation as well, inlays, onlays, anything that requires a drill, and then you're going to put some sort of material back onto the tooth to restore it after the cavity or the fracture has destroyed the tooth. So those are the applications that would be um, feasible. The big challenge is we need, we need the drill to know where it's at. Mm. So we need the drill to talk to the computer and so someone doesn't have to control the drill. The computer does that, and then the dentist basically ensures that everything is going as it's supposed to. Yeah. So, and without get without getting too in the weeds, um, for for a layperson like me, <laughs> and maybe the students can answer this. How do you how do you connect? Because each person, each individual tooth and person's jaw is going to be different. How do you map that? between the 3D printed models and the signals between the computer that moves the drill? Uh, yeah, so right now we do not have any, we don't have anything really fancy like computer vision or anything. Uh, the having, having the robot itself to know which tooth is at mm -hmm. is, was just out of scope for our current project. Right. But what we did do is that we are able to control where the handpiece goes with uh, inputs into our computer. Interesting. Um, Dr. Carpenter, this question probably won't come as a surprise to you, and I'm not even one of those people that has a whole lot of uh, dentistry phobia, but I've got to imagine if you're already a little nervous uh, with a person uh, maybe automating this procedure with something mounted on my face 
uh, could add to that anxiety potentially. <laughs> how how so, do you see folks responding to this? How how do you work through that with folks? You know, anytime um, there's a dentist that commits a crime, it's always in the paper because it just fits <laughs> with the persona, right? The, the sadistic dentist from the little no. shop of horrors that loves causing pain. And so um, all kidding aside, um, one of our big concerns was, you know, imagine that you had a robot strapped to your face that went rogue and it started drilling on your tooth or your tooth wasn't numb. I wasn't going to say it, so at least you went there. <laughs> it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. And so um, one of the important things is before anything would be, you know, attached to the jaw, you would have to make sure that you had profound anesthesia of the tooth. And then also there is a, a button that the patient has in their hand and that at any time if they start to feel claustrophobic if they feel any sensitivity um, it's just basically an override switch and so what we would do is um, before we would start the procedure we would you know outside of the patient's mouth you know fire the drill up and say okay push the button they'd push the button and they would see that when they push the button it kills the machine and so the patient's in complete control at all times of the actual procedure. And the beauty of it is as your dentist is sitting there trying to work on your tooth, you know, sweating, back, neck aching, <laughs> worrying about his day, you know, this robot can complete this preparation in a matter of seconds. So it goes in, it knows exactly where it's at, makes the cut very quickly, and then comes out. So it's actually a benefit for people that don't like the sound of the drill um, because it can it can speed things up in its final iteration. You have eased my concerns so much with <laughs> <laughs> with discussion so. of the panic button. <laughs> um, and that's the thing is, yeah. if somebody was just unable to get over it, and they're like, "I'm just not going to do that. It's too terrifying." It's like, good. Then you can you don't have to do it. Just have the dentist do it. Do right. it the old way. It works great. Right. And also, as you said before, there's a tech or a hygienist hygienist in the room as well you're not alone with a robot drilling into your teeth of course um, <laughs> um the uh uh kara and jillian i know uh i understand you two are seniors congratulations approaching that graduation day uh this is a prototype that you're looking to pass on to to the next round of students what uh what's what do you hope they tackle next I guess some of our biggest issue was just really refining the movement of the robot this past semester. Um, There's still some little touchy things that we weren't able to fully complete by the end of the semester. Um, but I'm really excited just to see how they will improve upon the movement uh, and maybe change even how they move the robot currently because uh, how we have it currently is like a effectively a 3D printer uh, with how those move, if you've ever seen one of those. Mm -hmm. um, but we initially had the idea of like an, an arm design where you've seen like those robotic arms that control different things and have a lot of range of motion. And so we were really interested in that, but it was not something feasible that we could do in the semester. Um, but I'm kind of excited just to see where, where they decide to take it, if anything, so. Right. My guests have been Dr. Chad Carpenter and biomedical engineering students at South Dakota Mines, Kara Hughes and Jillian Linder, both set to graduate again soon. Congratulations to you both and thank, all, thank you to all three of you for this uh, interesting project and, and good luck moving forward, thanks. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Have a great day, Jackie, thanks. Thanks. 
You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. If by chance you were bitten by the spring cleaning bug in the past few weeks, you perhaps dusted and scrubbed away literal cobwebs, now let's take a look at your devices and their figurative digital cobwebs. Jeff Litterick is a network architect at South Dakota's Bureau of Information and Telecommunications. He joins me now by phone for a tech radio conversation covering digital spring cleaning. Jeff, welcome back to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Well, I'm glad to be back. It's been a while. It has. It's been it's a minute. Be, yeah, it's always good to be back, though, talking to everybody about security and computers and technology. So Right. So we'll start with kind of the, the obvious. You know, your computer's running slow, your phone's dragging, you look at your memory and realize you have, like, barely any visible space left on that little memory bar. We, we know the obvious. Clear out your videos, your pictures, that sort of stuff. I'm curious, where do you find uh, those kind of hidden bits of digital clutter on devices that people don't think to clear out on the first pass? Well, most people, like you said, know your pictures, your videos, because especially videos, they take up the most space. They're the kind of the biggest bang for the buck to clean up. Or what I do is move them to an, if I'm not watching them all the time, but I want to say, move them to an external hard drive and off the main, main system or phone or anything like that. After that, it becomes a little bit more complex. Um, a lot of people do a lot of books, audio books. Those can take up quite a bit of space, uh, but not, not like, pictures and videos so as you go down this you get near and narrow but one thing that a lot of people forget and it's kind of hidden and kind of dangerous to deal with uh manually is every app you install every program you install picks up a whole bunch of files and over time it keeps adding to those files and this is one of the reasons why people in the past would reinstall windows every year or so mm. entirely just reinstall windows to clean up all the application temporary files garbage files um configuration files all that stuff that accumulated and is is clogged up the whole system i find over time most of the system driving stuff is actually eaten up by application files not so much your data and document files you still your documents are the biggest chunk but the hidden part that you just can't seem to ever get rid of or get down once you've kind of cleaned that up is all hidden in your application and most of the time uninstalling an application fixes that but not all the time mm. uh, so many times applications will leave a lot of stuff behind even after you install it so you have to be a little bit careful um, not so much on phones if you uninstall an app, but much more on a PC or, or Mac with the standard program kind of stuff. Um, and another important thing with spring cleaning um, to go through, I kind of want to talk to it, and we haven't talked too much about this on the program in the past, yeah. but um, apps get out of date, right. especially on their phone. Not so much your computer program stuff, but apps get out of date. They go obsolete, but they're still installed on your phone. Um, also, another thing we kind of talk about supply side attacks are very frequent now on applications on your phone. And what I mean by that is, oh, you downloaded this great app two years ago. You used it a few times. It was highly rated. But, you know, last year it was sold to a different developer from the person who first put it up and had the rate reviews. And they installed malware and adware in it. And your phone just happily auto updated that app. 
Mm. Um, and now you have adware, spyware, and stuff on your phone. This has happened quite a few times. This is not an uncommon occurrence anymore, that especially old apps that are not under active development get bought and sold by hackers to use because they already know millions of people have installed this app, right? right. A good spring clean, and, and one thing I'll point out is Android over time, not iOS, but Android, I wish iOS would do this, has gotten to the point where if you don't use an app for a certain amount of time, it actually removes all the permissions the app has. Mm. So if it does get infected, because this is now common enough, it should minimize the impact. But one of the things you should do every spring is if you're not using that app, uninstall it off your phone. Um, you're going to save battery life. You could save uh, a problem where a developer sells that app and some hacker buys it and tries to do malware on it. Um, I have lots of apps on my phone that over time I just found better ones and stuff. Make sure you go through at least once a year and delete all those apps. Just like deleting your videos or clean or backing up your videos um, to make space on your computer or phone, it's important to clean those apps out, both security-wise and also every app that installs does eat a little bit of battery, no matter what, even if you don't run it. It's still eating a tiny bit of battery. Now, a single app removing is not going to make a change, but you still only remove 20 apps, and you may notice a good change in your battery life, too. Right. On that, on that phone. So. Right. To that security risk, and I'm so glad you brought that up. That's a thing I was not aware of um, that that's occurring and especially more common. Um, at the risk of, you know, answering a, an app issue with yet another app, are we aware of any kind of service or setting or apps that keep an eye out for that particular situation and give you a little push notification that says, hey, you have this thing that is at risk of this? Luckily, not... This is something a user doesn't have to worry too much about. There are people looking at this and monitoring this. But what happens is um, an app gets sold, and it can go for a while before it gets detected, unfortunately. It's uh, usually adware on it. Malware tends to pop up a little bit faster on everybody's radar. But adware goes for a couple months. It gets auto-updated. And then someone will discover it. They will notify Google or Apple, and they will pull that app from the store and actually uninstall it for you. Mm. Um, the problem is you still have a couple months of exposure to this. Sure. There's really no good way on the phone itself to detect this stuff. It's, it's basically the store, the Apple store, the Google store has to detect it and then remove it for you. Um, and this is why it's becoming kind of common and very practiced because these hackers can say develop it. Well, yeah, you, you know, you made 20,000 off the app. I'll give you 50,000 just to sell me the right to the app. And then they impersonate the developer with the good reputation for that app and then change the app over time, slightly over time, so it goes unnoticed as long as possible to put more and more adware and stuff in. So if you're not using the app especially, remove it. Just get it out of there. Reinstall it. It's later on if you need it again, right? Right. It's like your it's like your Marie Kondo uh, clothing spring cleaning tips. If you haven't used it in the last couple seasons, get rid of it. If you haven't used the app in recent memory, delete it. It's fine. You'll live without it. And, and I will expand this a little bit. Normally, most Mac and Windows PCs, because they don't auto-update, this is not as much of an issue because you normally have to be prompted or you go out to auto-update. So getting malware is a little bit harder, though there are supply chain attacks where they've actually attacked PC programs and then try to trick people to updating them. The more common one on that, though, is now as we move more into the Microsoft Store and the Apple Store on those devices, the same issues come in. Your apps are auto-updating in the background. Hmm. If if they get compromised um, on the back end and through the store on the supply chain, so to speak, well, then 
you have that same risk. So any time of app, be it on your PC, Mac, or stuff, you should always monitor, only install what you need to use and what you want to use. And if you're done using it, uninstall it until you need it again. What's new in the world of password management? Because as I as I get more and more things that need updated at different intervals, and I know I'm not supposed to write them down, Jeff, but I just don't know what else to do. I can't remember all of them. Well, luckily for all of us, passwords made for most people, not every password, but most passwords, at least online, will be the way of the dodo bird. Um, there's a new whole mechanism co- coming out called Passkey. Google, Microsoft, Apple... Uh, Facebook, everybody is behind this and trying to move it. In fact, the the Chrome and Edge now have support for it. Um, now it's kind of as the browsers, Safari's gain support here soon. Um, as all this stuff gets support, you're going to start to see the websites move to this. And what this does is it actually replaces your password with kind of a private key that you store on your device, be it your phone, be it your computer, or multiple devices. And it's kind of like a pass token in that if the website detects that token, they can securely identify who you are and will auto-log you into your account. You won't even see a username and password on the screen. Hmm. You just go to a website, you're in your account. Um, and this can be through Bluetooth. So you don't have to put your token on a public computer or, or even your private computer. You can have it on, your, on a secure phone, and all you have to have is your phone within Bluetooth range. And then suddenly, at any website you do, logs in as you automatically. Um, Windows is, is, build, is uh, baking this in to the login process. Uh, but resistance will be high, and it will take time to change. But sure. that is coming because... Here's, we talked about supply chain attacks. One of the bigger attacks now is actually hitting all the password managers. Mm. Like you said, you write it down. So the next step everyone did was get to online password managers that, you know, store these for you, hopefully securely, as we've seen not so much uh, in some cases. Sure. Um, and so that you can use them anywhere, and they're just there for you. You don't have to remember them. Music Problem to my ears. Realize, yep. Problem is the hackers realize this. They're now attacking all those companies massively, and a couple of them have been compromised severely a couple of times now. Right. With I'm going to need to jump in off. because we've got a hard out we're coming up against, but we'll have to bring you back for more on that. Jeff Litterick is a yep. network architect at uh, South Dakota's Bureau of Information and Telecommunications. Thank you again, Jeff. We'll be back for more later. Have a good uh, weekend, everybody. Let's take a moment for a house with a history. Tom Johnson and Gail Parfrey are no strangers to renovating homes. Together with the help of their contractor, David Gockel, the couple has flipped more than 20 properties. They manage these homes as long-term or vacation rental properties. But the Cotton House in Lead was different. Time had not been kind to the once elegant home built in 1901. The couple decided to purchase the home from the city for $30,000 in 2018. At the time, it was a brick shell with missing floors and bare stud walls. Tom and Gail talked with SDPB about what the Cotton House is today. It's not a long-term or short-term rental, but a grand home they enjoy with friends and family. Well, uh, I'm certainly aware that um Anytime that you, that you bring something back from the dead, so to speak, um, and, and rejuvenate and put some life back in it, 
that it does inspire others to do the same thing. But I would certainly not want to think that, that we should take any credit for that. There's been a lot of nice houses redone in Lee before we did this one. A guy by the name of James Cotton built this house. The house was built in 1901. Um, James Cotton came from Cornwall, England, and he worked for Homestake for a period of time, and then he and a partner by the name of Andrews went into the whiskey distilling business, and so it was Cotton and Andrews Whiskey. Just a lot bigger project than we'd ever done before, and honestly, we'd never done any, an old project did an old house, um, so that was entirely new to us and made it fun. Well, we thought we wanted what we called comfort furniture at the time. That'll change in due time. Probably find some more old stuff or something that looks more fitting. The, the big pieces came from Texas. The smaller pieces we got from Deadwood. So we just started looking and hauling it in and put it in place. My favorite features are the original woodwork of this house. The, the woodwork that has been placed into this house um, is a replica of the original woodwork. We actually rebuilt all of the um, base and all of the trim and all of the windows and all of the doors as they were. This right here behind is the best part of it. It was all just laying around in this house. I have no idea why, why it was still here and uh, we were able to refinish it and get it to match up with everything and it's just fun to sit in here and look at this and think, oh boy, how did they do it back then? This house is 120 years old and I'm real sure it'll still be here 120 years from now. SDPB explores the Cotton House and the community of Lead in May's episode of Dakota Life. Catch it on SDPB TV on May 4th. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. This weekend marks the end of National Poetry Month, and to celebrate, we're revisiting some of our favorite poetry conversations. Conversations like the one Lori Walsh had with Joy Harjo in 2019. Joy is a poet, musician, author, and the 23rd Poet Laureate of the United States. Take a listen to a snippet of her conversation with Lori. You write in Crazy Brave about that time in the 70s where there was really this indigenous artistic renaissance and, and, and your connections with so many other um, artists. Um, do, did that period continue? Do you see that that is, is still happening today, sort of that artistic output and celebration of, of the arts and activism? I think it's, you know, certainly being at IA and being part of that or watching it happen or being inside it while it was happening, you know, caused a major shift. And I think it's connected, probably connected to all of them and maybe activism. To be a native, just to be a native person is uh, an event of activism, mm -hmm. just our presence here, um, our presence and um, here here in this country. Tom, you, you, your childhood is spent... Uh, you live in this sort. You inhabit this really poetic place, and you tell stories about, um, you know, playing with bees, for example, and not getting stung. There's there's many examples of how you're in this space that some people wouldn't recognize. H how do you look now as an adult back at your childhood and connect that with poetry? I think as children, well, for one, we're closer to that door of emergence where we came from, and 
we haven't uh, we're still connected to our to our create to our we realize that we're creative souls even without you know we don't need anyone to tell us children are just naturally open and creative and a lot of times our educational system you know it, we start to shut down you know we start to shut down with challenges um, it's, you know if that part of ourselves is decreased if our spirits aren't fed you know that kind of creativity can be shut down especially in a society that doesn't value what it means to be a you know creative person an artist yeah how has that shown up in your life people not valuing um you as an artist you as a poet you as a musician what does that look like what does that look like in your life I'd rather look at people who were wonderful and helped out. And it's sometimes yeah. it's even just the small things. I was an art student at the University of New Mexico, and I would go into um, this art supply store. And I remember going in and seeing Pablito Velarde, who was an amazing uh, Pueblo painter. And she looked over at me and gave me a big smile. And it was a welcome, like, yes, you know, here are we're Native women. You know, and she was, you know, Native women making art, and it was just like my grandmother and my aunt, my aunt who I was so close to, and you know, small things like that matter. And then I've had some incredible teachers through my life, and I, I tend to, I would prefer to think of them, and how that, you know, I got help. You know, I still, yeah. we all need, you know, we all, need, you know, it's it's there, and it's often in those small moments of saying, um, you know, affirming to someone, affirming someone's existence or their gift, whether they're a child or, you know, someone older. And you're that person who does that for so many others now, as especially in this new platform as a U.S. Poet Laureate. Are you recognizing those people that, uh, you know, you can tell when you meet them just by the looks on their face that, uh, that you are opening that door for them, that you are affirming for them, their own, their own poetry, their own value, their own um, expression. Well, that's the that's the gift of this of this position, because you know, positions also it's, it's quite it's an honor and it's there's a lot of responsibility. But the gift of it is that just coming in at this time, you know, as a native woman, as a poet. In, in a time like this where there's a lot of, um, you know, the country is split and, you know, it's a broken heart, essentially, that stepping into the position at this time, you know, it, it you know, it's a doorway. And in that doorway, there's not going to be any fixing of that broken heart until all the stories, you know, of the people of this country are are acknowledged. And, um, you know, and poetry can do that. Poetry is a way to speak beyond words. And so I think of all the Native poets, a lot of people will say they've even never even known there was a Native poet. And what this position says is, yes, there are Native, you know, there are Native poets. Yes, we're human beings. It really does come down to that level. And, yes, we write poems. And it's not just me. We have hundreds, hundreds of Native poets, very young and and um, you know older than older than me. And, and it says something. Um, you know, people have commented on what it says at, at this particular 
day and age in American history that they chose you, that they chose a Native American poet, that at a time when there is brokenheartedness, that they said, this is who we need right now, this voice. Uh, turn, your, turn your ears in this direction, please. Um, what do you sort of see your role as during your tenure? Um, you know, what do you have in mind? Well, I'm a poetry ambassador for everyone, or for, for the poetry, for the art of poetry. Yeah. But what's important is that the country see how we're connected, Native poets, that there are um, this, you know, it's important that they know that we're all still here. There's over 500-something tribal, federally recognized tribal nations, and that there are many poets. There are many who practice this art who listen. Poetry is an art that can we all need it. It we we can all use it. So at the next fall, I have a um, along with I've helped edit along with many many of our best native poets an anthology, a Norton anthology of poetry mm-hmm. of native poetry. It's historic, you know, from the older oldest poet poems we could find in mostly in English, some in our native languages to the most recent youngest poets that's going to be part of it you know to show that you know we all you know we're also part of this this whole story this whole this the story of poetry the american story of poetry just like we're essential to the american story you know of history you know of history of 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 what this country is That was Lori Walsh's 2019 conversation with Joy Harjo. Joy was the 23rd Poet Laureate of the United States. There's new music to hear from Boy Genius, Jethro Tull, and Caroline Polechek on today's Fresh Tracks. Sturgis native David Hersrud brings his years in the music industry and lifelong interest in discovering new music to a discussion with Larry Rohr. They start with what you could call a supergroup, the three women who make up Boy Genius. One thing when you start talking about supergroups, people talk about bands like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Traveling Wilburys, most of them male-dominated. But my favorite supergroup right now is Boy Genius, a group formed in 2018 by three extremely talented females, Julian Baker, Phoebe Bridgers, and Lucy Dacus. Okay, why'd you pick them out? Well, whoever does their PR for them, they made the cover of Rolling Stone. Most of the trade publications and and magazines have mentioned the group For me, I had to go listen to him, and what I heard just kind of blew me away. You said you wanted to feel alive, so we went to the beach. You were born in July, 95, in a deadly heat. They've been impressing a lot of people here in the past four or five years. What's interesting is listening to the album because their musical styles, for the three of them, are different. The other thing is is that they didn't set out to start a band. They played different concerts and things like that and became very, very close friends. They released an EP in 2018 that I think was just kind of a one-off deal, didn't know how well it was going to go. But NPR named the album as the 12th best album of 2018. 
good list to be on. Yeah. We got to be clear too that the name of the album is The Record. Yes, <laughs> I love that. Any background on the name? Three talented females in a group call themselves Boy Genius. Know anything about that? No. Okay. <laughs> no, I didn't. As soon as you hear the sound of the flute, if you're paying attention, the name Jethro Tull will come to mind. Very, very few bands have used that as a main lead instrument and an identity. It's probably appropriate that the new Tall album is Rook Flute. What I love about this band is they incorporate classical music, English folk music, rock, and jazz. The band's still active. They play around 100 plus concerts a year and they are still a major concert draw. And you've got a bone to pick with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There's a lot of bands that belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but I take a look at a band like Duran Duran. Mm -hmm. They're in there, Jethro Tull isn't. One of the reasons I got excited about Jethro Tull is back in the days when I was working in Chicago when I just started, my wife and I used to play Pick a Hit, and I'd bring some music home and we'd play it and listen to it and, you know, have some fun with it. And I remember I brought home this band from England called Jethro Tull, and I knew absolutely nothing about them. Okay. But I brought the album home, I put it on, and all I could remember is my lovely wife was in the kitchen making dinner, and she comes out and said, that's a hit. <laughs> and she nailed it beautifully. This first I would make a suggestion get this album, but go out and get one of Jethro Tull's greatest hits packages. Okay. Rook Flute featuring the flute. Caroline Polachek is not a name on everyone's lips. She's a very, very talented woman and a heck of a, a singer and songwriter. I was not familiar with her, and which kind of upset me because this is her seventh album. I Want to Turn Into You is right. the album, Caroline Polachek. These days I wear my body like an uninvited guest. I turn it right and right and right instead of turning left. The boy of patience is a magic kind of medicine. She is not only an artist producing her own music, she does a lot of work for other artists around the world. She co-wrote and co-produced No Angel. People may recognize that as a song done by Beyonce. She falls, I guess, in line with a lot of what I would call eclectic artists like Bjork, Kate Bush, Fiona Apple, and Anya. So many stories we were told about a safety net. But when I look for it, it's just a hand that's holding mine. I'm wearing black demo on the southern horse of innocence. And that's all right because it hides the dirt and hides the wine. You said, no regrets, cause you're my sunset, fiery red. Forever fearless and in your arms, a warm. 
So I didn't really hear the Enya connection because I, a name like Enya makes me think kind of lyrical and flowing, but I, I wouldn't have made that connection. A lot of people haven't. Okay. Uh, <laughs> part of it, I think, is if you take a look at, at the four people I mentioned, you're talking artists who control their future. Career management yeah. style. Okay. This album is the highest rated album so far this year with the exception of a couple of box sets. This is the song Desire. It's from I Want to Turn Into You, the album that's been out for a little over a month now from Caroline Polachek. And Rook Flute is the latest from Jethro Tall. They're still at it, and the flute is still the signature. And come on, let's get them in the Hall of Fame. And then Boy Genius are out with The Record. That's our fresh track recommendations for your homework. And once again, a big thanks to our musical guide, David Herzrud. Thanks, David. Have a good one. And thank you for listening to In the Moment. I'm Jackie Hendry in for Lori Walsh. Have a great weekend, and thank you for listening.